Hello, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe. Welcome back to VLMD Rounds. I always knew when I started this podcast that I would do an episode on insulin and insulin resistance, but I thought that I would try to set it up properly before I actually delved into the subject. And that's because it's such a big and complex topic. Now, my patients are very interested in this. They know I use uh, ketogenic and low-carb strategies to help them improve their health. So they go online and they want to know a lot more about insulin resistance. And a lot of the stuff that's out there is very useful and informative. But sometimes they come back to me with questions and I can see that they're a bit fuzzy about some of the concepts that are being um, discussed. Not everyone has a science or medical background, so I thought it would be a good idea to just, you know, set up a basic foundation, get us all on the same page before I actually, you know, talked about insulin and insulin resistance. Really complex, fascinating topic. Now, initially, I thought I would just, you know, start off with hormones and so forth and how we handle glucose in our body. But then I um, thought of this encounter with a patient, which is a rather alarming story because the patient is also a healthcare provider. And he came to me and probably because he knew that I tend to use low-carb strategies with patients, the first thing he said uh, when I entered the room was, oh, I just want you to know, I don't eat any carbs. And I thought, oh, okay, good to know, right? And proceeded to do his history and physical. And when it came to the point where I was getting a dietary intake from him, I just asked him, what do you eat for breakfast? And he said, well, sometimes I have a muffin and I thought did he did he say muffin did he say he doesn't eat? oh you know what sometimes he said sometimes so you know what probably most of the time he doesn't eat carbs and then once in a while you know he has a muffin so then I asked him well what do you normally eat for breakfast and he said, toast. Did he say toast? I think he said toast. toast. No, maybe he meant roast. Was that roast? No, he said to- toast. You, you know, don't ask. Don't, don't go there. But... And, and what, do you, what do you put on your um, toast? Oh, jam. Ah. Okay, that's a very interesting no-carb diet. So I told you it's kind of alarming. It was a healthcare provider, and most of you already know we do not teach nutrition in medical school. Um, There's no curriculum for it, and we tend to farm this out to nutritionists and dietitians who in general do a good job, but I think that Even there, the curriculum probably is outdated and needs to be revised. So yeah, I did think I would start off with hormones, but then I thought, you know, 
I think we should just get down to the foundational level and maybe just start with carbohydrates. All right, so that's what we're going to discuss in this episode. We'll talk about carbohydrates and their various manifestations in nature and how they are digested and absorbed in your body. Let's go. All right, when we say carbohydrates, we're talking about organic compounds that are made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, right? So plants fix carbon dioxide and they use water and then they make, you know, carbohydrates, carbo for the carbon part, hydrates for water, H2O, right? Hydrogen and oxygen. The simplest form of carbohydrates would be simple sugars. These we also call monosaccharides, mono for one, saccharides from the Greek word saccharon for sugar, right? And then the simplest form of carbohydrates, and you could think of it maybe as one unit, one Lego brick or block, okay? So these simple sugars can have different numbers of carbons in their formula in the chain. So if you have three carbons, that would be a triose sugar like glyceraldehyde, dihydroxyacetone. Those are found in glycolysis, right? If you have four carbons in the chain, those are tetrose sugars like erythrose. If you have five carbons in the chain, and you're probably getting the hang of it, those are pentose sugars. And an example would be ribose, as in ribonucleic acid, RNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, right? So there you see sugars are really important because they form part of your DNA. In fact, um, the sugar phosphate um, part of the DNA it forms the backbone of your DNA chain, right? So that would be the five carbon sugars. The six carbon monosaccharides are called hexoses, and then there we have the very familiar glucose, probably the most famous and abundant um, monosaccharide, the glucose uh, monosaccharide. So six carbons there, but other six carbon uh, sugars would be uh, galactose and also fructose, F-R-U-C-T-O-S-E. And that is essentially fruit sugar but you also find it in honey and you find it in agave nectar, actually a lot of fructose in agave nectar. So sometimes people will tell me they don't eat sugar, but they use agave nectar as a sweetener, maybe for their coffee or tea. And that's actually a lot of the monosaccharide fructose there, which can be pretty bad for your liver. So, um, you know, I won't, talk about fructose specifically now, but if you're interested, I can do an episode on that, right? And yeah, I know some people say fructose. I somehow learned it as fructose, so fruct I'm going to say fructose, okay? Fructose. So these are all monosaccharides. Uh, the important thing to also remember is that all, all of the monosaccharides are what we call reducing sugars. And this just means they have hydrogen electrons that they can donate, right? See episode one. Um, so they have these hydrogen electrons that they can donate, which makes them reactive. 
And this will be important when we talk about the effects of sugar in our bodies, right? All right, so now if you take these monosaccharide units, these individual Lego bricks, and then link them together, so you form a chemical bond, a covalent chemical bond between the two bricks, you will now form a disaccharide. Two sugar units joined together would be a disaccharide. So joining glucose with another glucose together will give you the disaccharide maltose, M-A-L-T-O-S-E, which essentially is a part of starch, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. So that's maltose. If you take glucose and combine it, link it together with galactose, another monosaccharide, then you're going to get lactose, which is, of course, your milk sugar. So a lot of times people say they have lactose intolerance. This simply means they don't have the enzyme lactase, which is required to break the bond between the glucose and the galactose units. When you break the bonds, you now have these individual sugar units that can be absorbed by your body. But if you don't have or, or you have very little of the lactase enzyme, then you can't digest the milk sugar and that passes through into your large intestines. And because it's os osmotically active, it's going to draw a lot of water with it and you'll have a lot of cramping and discomfort and diarrhea. And that's, you know, those are the symptoms of lactose intolerance. And if you were to, let's say, take a lactase enzyme exogenously, you buy it from the store, you just have to make sure you take it right before your dairy meal. You can't take the lactase enzyme and wait an hour and then have your dairy meal. You just have to take it right before. Okay, so combining glucose and galactose would give you lactose. If you combine glucose with fructose, then you get sucrose, which is our famous table sugar. So a lot of times people think that table sugar is just the glucose, but it's not. It's actually this disaccharide combination of glucose and fructose. You know, those uh, monosaccharides are not that sweet. If you've ever just had a glucose tablet, it's not really that sweet. But when you combine the monosaccharides and you form a disaccharide, these disaccharides are crystalline compounds. They're very soluble in water and they are very sweet. So table sugar is really sweet. Now, interestingly, with diabetic patients that are worried about hypoglycemia, worried about their blood sugar getting too low, um, some, you know, I tell them, if you're worried about that, you can just go and buy the glucose tablets over the counter. And I think, you know, if you manage your diet properly, you normally don't have to worry. But let's just say someone says, you know, I get hypoglycemia easily and I worry about that. And just to relieve their anxiety, I tell them, you can buy these glucose tablets over the counter. But interestingly, they will never use the glucose tablets. Never. 100% guaranteed they won't use the glucose tablets. If they feel they have hypoglycemia coming on or an episode of hypoglycemia, they're always going to drink the OJ. Why do you drink the OJ? Oh, because you know my blood sugar, I think it was running. You have the glucose 
tablets, right? Remember we talked about the glucose? Uh, yeah, well, no, I thought the OJ would be better. No, the OJ is not better. The OJ is sweeter, which is why they will always drink the OJ, okay? Or they'll have a candy or something. They won't take those glucose tablets because glucose on its own is kind of disappointing. It's not that sweet. But combined with fructose, you now have sucrose and that's really sweet. Sucrose originally we got from cane sugar. We would extract it from cane sugar. Nowadays, I think people tend to use beets. It's a lot less labor intensive and you can extract a lot of table sugar from beets. So again, people tell me I don't eat sugar, but then they're chugging down the beet juice, you know, drinks. Oh, that's a lot of sugar. And that's where you get your table sugar from anyway. All right, so those are the disaccharides. Now, if you had three to 10 Lego bricks combined together, then you would call that an oligosaccharide, oligo for few. So three to 10 monosaccharides linked together and you would get an oligosaccharide. Now, oligosaccharides, they don't generally occur in free form in your body. They tend to be linked to proteins and lipids, right? And we see them in forms like raffinose or stachyose, which are found in plants, vegetables, um, fruit, that kind of thing. We also have verbascos, which is found in legumes. Now these oligosaccharides, they're a lot of times not well digested, right? And so they kind of sit in the gut for a while and they are fermented by gut bacteria so they can give patients a lot of symptoms of bloating and gas, flatulence, that kind of thing. So then those patients, you know, are generally told uh, to do a FODMAPS diet. Okay, that's a very interesting diet to me, uh, simply because when, sometimes when, um, practitioners hear that I am prescribing a low-carb or ketogenic diet with my patients, that's, that's really risky and, you know, that's a, a fad and it might be dangerous and, you know, that, that really doesn't do anything for you, you know, so um, it's not very, it's not very well respected sometimes. But if you tell a patient to do a FODMAPS diet, suddenly it's, you know, it's very, very respectable and the right thing to do, right? So FODMAPS would be, it stands for, F is for the fermentable O, oligosaccharides, yeah. And then uh, D is for disaccharides. M is for monosaccharides, right? And the P is for really the polyols, which are sugar alcohols. So a practitioner may tell the patient to do a FODMAPS diet, meaning avoid the things in FODMAP, right? Avoid the fermentable oligosaccharides and the disaccharides and the monosaccharides and the sugar alcohols, which, you know, I if you think about it, right, it's basically saying avoid sugars. So I think 
this is a marketing issue and terminology really counts here. So nowadays, sometimes I don't say we go low carb with our patients. You can just say it's kind of a modified FODMAPS diet and suddenly, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's a good thing. And um, you don't get a lot of pushback if you say modified FODMAPS diet, right? Just just saying in case you ever run up against that problem. Um, but you know, we tell patients all the time to avoid FODMAPs. But if you think about it, you're avoiding all the fermentable, you know, saccharides, the oligosaccharides, the disaccharides, the table sugar, the monosaccharides, basic simple sugars, and the sugar alcohols. So I generally recommend a modified FODMAPs diet. All right. Okay. Moving on from the oligosaccharides, we have now anything more than 10 units of Lego bricks joined together, of these saccharide units joined together, we would call those polysaccharides, poly for many. All right, with the polysaccharides, it's actually another term for it. And those would be the complex carbs. So when we talk about complex carbs, we're essentially talking about the polysaccharides. Okay. Now, structurally, you can divide them into two groups. Another name for the complex carbs are glycans, G-L-Y-C-A-N-S, glycans. So structurally, you could divide them into homoglycans and heteroglycans. And homoglycans just means they're made up of repeating units of one type of monosaccharide. So if it's glucose, it's glucose, 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 glucose. That's kind of hard to say fast. But, you know, one type of monosaccharide repeating in a chain. And if you have heteroglycans, uh, then you're talking about more than one type of monosaccharides. You might have glucose and fructose and galactose and whatever repeating in the chain, all right? Made up of more than one type of monosaccharide. That's essentially what it means. Uh, but maybe a more functional way to think about the polysaccharides or complex carbs for me would be the way I divide it, I think about it as food, not food, okay? Food, not food. And then if we go to the food department, right, then you can further digest that into, uh, divide that into digestibles and non-digestibles, okay? So you go food, not food, in the food department, digestible food or non-digestible food. And then within the non-digestible food, you can have uh, water-soluble or not water-soluble, right? That's just kind of in my head how I see it. All right, let's go to the food department. And there we will talk about starch first. So starch is the storage form of carbohydrates in plants. Right? The plants make the glucose and they store them in these granules, the starch granules. And starch is essentially made up of repeating glucose units linked together. And there are two forms. One form is called amylose, A-M-Y-L-O-S-E. And that's a linear chain of glucose units linked together. It's not branched. There's a little bit of branching, but don't worry about it. There's, 
it's generally not branched, think of it that way, right? And repeating glucose units, that's amylose. You have another form of starch and that's called amylopectin, A-M-Y-L-O-P-E-C-T-I-N, amylopectin. And here, again, you have repeating units of glucose, but you have these long chains and they have also branches coming off them. So essentially the two types of bonds there, you don't need to remember that, but you know, one type to link all the carbons together, another type for the branch points. So amylopectin is long chains that are also branched, and that would be about 80% of starch. Okay, so that's the majority of starch. And then amylose and amylopectin are stored together in these granules in plants. Now, when you digest um, the amylopectin, for example, you chop them up, partially digest them. So you chop them up into smaller linear branched chains, right? Then those pieces, the partially digested pieces of amylopectin are called dextrins. D-E-X-T-R-I-N-S, dextrins. If you further digest the dextrins and you break them down further, you are going to end up with the disaccharide maltose. Remember maltose? I told you it's glucose plus glucose linked together. And that's the disaccharide form of starch. So if you digest starch down to the disaccharide unit, you'll get maltose and then you can break that bond and you'll have individual glucose units. I say that because a lot of times if you look at an ingredient list, you'll see the term maltodextrins, right? And essentially maltodextrins just re refers to this partially digested starch and it's essentially sugar because when you eventually break it down, you're just going to get the glucose units, right? So maltodextrin is another name for sugar. There are many different names for sugar, especially in ingredient labels, and that makes it hard to recognize, right? They have many disguises. So you should be aware that maltodextrins are really um, from the breakdown of starch. In fact, actually, just tangentially, if you look at the artificial sweetener, the brand name Splenda, if you look at the brand name Splenda, you look at the ingredient label and it's going to say sugar, maltodextrin, and then sucralose. Sucralose is the actual artificial sweetener, but the brand name Splenda has sugar in it, sugar and maltodextrins in it, right? And a lot of people don't know that. So many patients will be using the Splenda thinking they're just purely using the artificial sweetener, which is sucralose, but the brand name Splenda has sugar and the sucralose in it, just saying. So, you know, uh, you have to be careful because that's a sugar load that if you're a diabetic, you may not be aware of. All right, so that would be um, the starch, again, storage form of glucose in plants. Now, if we look at, uh, when we look at animals then, then we have a storage form as well. And that would be glycogen, G-L-Y-C-O-G-E-N. So glycogen, again, we take the glucose units and we link them up. 
It's actually very similar structurally to amylopectin. So long glucose chains with branches. And in fact, glycogen is more highly branched than amylopectin, really quite a bit more branched than amylopectin, and it's also more compact, all right? So that's the storage form of glucose in animals, and you can store glycogen in muscle and liver cells. That's it. You can't store it in fat cells, you can't store it in your skin, right? So you really can only store glycogen in your body, in muscle and in the liver, right? So that eventually if you need that glucose, you could break it, you could break down the glycogen and access glucose that way. We'll talk about that in another episode. All right, so that would be the um, glycogen and that's the sore form of sugar in humans. All right, now we can talk about, the, that's the digestible part of food. Now we can talk about the indigestible part of food. And we will look at cellulose, all right? Cellulose also would be um, glucose units. So it's a homoglycan, it's only glucose, uh, linked together in long chains. They have no branches, but the type of bond that is between those sugar units in cellulose uh, that type of bond, we don't have an enzyme to break down, right? That's why we can't digest cellulose. If you're a ruminant like a cow or a sheep or a goat, then you can chop down on that cellulose and extract uh, the sugar that way. But as a human being, you don't have that enzyme. And so it's really not digestible. It's just going to pass your large intestines, bulk up your stool and, you know, help you have a bowel movement, all right? So that's what cellulose is good for. Cellulose is an insoluble form of fiber, right? Again, the, the non-digestibles are called dietary fibers, and cellulose is an uh, uh, insoluble dietary fiber. But you also have these soluble fibers, and one of them would be inulin. I-N-U-L-I-N, I-N-U-L-I-N. So inulin in nature would be found in onions and chicory and asparagus and Jerusalem artichoke, which is not an artichoke, I found out. I don't know why they do that. It doesn't even look like an artichoke. So anyway, uh, you can find inulin in those foods. It's actually made up of repeating units of fructose, interestingly, instead of glucose, right? It's fructose repeating units. And it's highly, highly soluble, so it absorbs a lot of water with it. And when it absorbs all this water, it sits in your digestive tract longer. It sits in your colon a lot longer, right? And this allows... Um, it to ferment with the gut bacteria, right? It becomes food for gut bacteria. And a lot of times people are interested in inulin because it has been associated with the growth of a species of gut bacteria called Acomantia mucinophila, which has been linked to good metabolic health, okay? If you have a lot of Acomantia mucinophila, 
you have less obesity, you see less diabetes, right? You see more adiponectin versus leptin production. So there are all these metabolic effects that are considered beneficial with Acomantia mucinophila. And it appears that that species of bacteria likes the inulin as a food source. So as a result, people will try to get inulin extract or they buy supplements of inulin as a fiber and they may take it, add it to their, I don't know, shakes or whatever in the day to see if they can promote more of the growth of this bacteria. Uh, patients will also ask me, shouldn't I be taking more inulin since it has this beneficial effect with this particular species of bacteria? So I just want to say with dietary fiber, this is a hard one for me. I do a lot of classes for my patients and I haven't done one yet on fiber because it's a tough category and there's a lot to think about because obviously it's linked to the gut microbiome and gut health and that's a mega topic. So many components, right? So I tend to be very careful here with my recommendations. What we know about inulin is, yes, it can promote the growth of acomantia, but the other thing about it is that we've seen with inulin, when you actually supplement with inulin, we can see an increased risk of liver cancer and damage to the liver. So if you look at mouse studies, right, uh, we've seen some mice studies where uh, mice that had dysbiosis, so they didn't have the healthiest guts, uh, and they were fed inulin, right? These mice developed liver cancer, whereas mice, the wild-type mice that had healthy guts, or mice that were given antibiotics did not develop liver cancer with the inulin supplementation. So there's this thought that you know, with the supplementation of inulin, it promotes the growth of some bacteria that might be causing a negative effect on the liver. And very recently, there was a study in gastroenterology also on inulin. And this inulin was fed to these mice that were prone to liver cancer. So they had something called a portosystemic shunt. Normally, there's... Um, a blood supply from your gut to the liver, right, first, before it eventually goes into your entire bloodstream. So blood supply goes first to the liver, feeds into the liver, and then from there, there's another um, circulation that takes it to the major systemic circulation. If you have a portosystemic shunt, it means you bypass that route between the gut and the liver, and you just go straight to the systemic circulation, right? So these mice had that, and when they were fed a diet that was high in inulin, they actually actually had more liver cancer. They were already prone to liver cancer, but now it's even more of these mice had liver cancer. And this was thought to be associated with the rise in bile acids in their bloodstream. So you know, your liver makes bile from cholesterol and the bile helps you digest food, right? So it breaks down fat. And in the intestines, um, some of these gut bacteria 
can metabolize uh, the bile acids and make what we call secondary bile acids. And if you have leaky gut, for example, or like these mice, you have a portosystemic shunt, then these secondary bile acids go directly into the systemic blood circulation. And it seems like those bile acids are quite damaging to the liver. They can cause inflammation and fibrosis and then incite liver cancer um, in those mice, right? So, and we've seen like even in humans, uh, people who have liver cancer seem to have higher levels of bile acids in their blood. So when we talk about supplementation with fiber, I'm actually very conservative there because you'll see that people will buy these inulin extracts. And I think it's certainly fine to get it from food sources like the, you know, onions and the asparagus and the Jerusalem artichoke. Most of the uh, inulin extracts that you see sold in the store, they're extracted from chicory root, right? If you just had the chicory root itself, probably should be okay. But when they concentrate it in an extract, in a supplement, that's a huge dose of inulin. And again, with anything in your body, it's the balance that counts. And if you disrupt that balance, you can get into trouble. Okay, so that's inulin, homoglycans, repeating fructose units. Uh, it can promote the growth of some good gut bacteria, but in excess may actually cause some problems as well. All right, so now there are other soluble fibers and these are heteroglycans so now they have not just one type of monosaccharide uh, making up their structure they just have different uh, monosaccharides in their structure so they're heteroglycans but they are dietary fiber that are soluble in that category you have the gums and pectin so gum for example gum is actually from plant sources so if a plant gets hurt, like you have a plant and you cut the stem, it secretes this waxy substance, which is the gum, right? And that gum is not digestible, but it absorbs a lot of water. And a lot of times in processed foods, you will see in the ingredient list that uh, they use gum, gum extract in there, okay? That's where the gum comes from. And then the other class would be pectins. Pectins, yes, so also soluble fibers. Pectins, oftentimes um, when patients have loose stool or maybe they have diarrhea, they are told by the healthcare professionals to eat uh, the BRAT diet, I believe, okay? And the BRAT stands for bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast, bread. That's right. Okay. Bananas. So I, I have, I have patients who tell me I have loose stool, Dr. Lowe. So I have to eat a banana every day to help bind me. You know, my doctor told me that, or a nutritionist told me that because my stool tends to be loose, a little watery, and I don't like that. And I, want to use the banana to bind it so um, it's not like I'm eating sugar because 
you know, I like it, but it's just that it really helps me and it's necessary. Okay. All right. So, yeah, bananas, apples, they do have, they do have pectin in them. Uh, but we, we kind of neglect to tell them an important thing. If you want the pectin to help you bind your stool, it has to be green, unripe bananas. Green, unripe bananas. Because once the fruit ripens, you lose the pectin content, which is the binding part. Anyway, that's just replaced by sugars. All right? So yeah, green, unripe bananas if you want some binding. And let me tell you, there's not one patient who's going to have the green, unripe banana. Oh, you, yeah, I know. It's good. It's just a little watery, my stool. I'll deal with it. It's fine. Yeah, I don't really need the unripe bananas, right? Because now it's not yummy anymore. So, yeah, make sure you tell them, yeah, you may have heard of the brat diet, but when they talk about the pectins, they really mean unripe green bananas. The more unripe, the better. The apple part is really mostly in the peel in the core, right? So... So we just have to be a little bit more precise when we're talking to patients. And again, some people will get pectin powders and add that in. Okay, um, I think we do have to be very careful with those fibers. The gums, the pectins, the inulin, all are soluble fibers. The other one, remember I talked about the oligosaccharides, and I talked about how they're not well digested and they sit in your gut for a while and they ferment a lot of bacteria. So if you have a lot of bacterial fermentation in your gut, that might just throw off the balance in the gut microbiome, right? People always ask me, well, is there one bacteria that's the most important or, you know, what do you think? I think actually, and I'm not an expert, but I will say that just based on everything I have read, it's probably not going to end up being one or two types of bacteria that will make a huge difference in your health. With the gut, it's probably the entire ecology of the gut, meaning the community of species that are there, the balance and ratio of different uh, species that are there, and how they interact with the immune cells, right, that are present in your gut, and also the overall health of the uh, cells in the gut wall, the mucus layer, right? So that whole ecology needs to be considered when we talk about gut health. And I think it's rather simplistic to just prioritize one or two types of bacteria and say, well, if you eat a lot of this and you get a lot of this bacteria, you should be fine. So we just want to be careful there. Um, I do have my patients eat more of the indigestible, insoluble fibers. So the more the cellulose type, the green leafy types um, that will also have some minerals in them, for example. Uh, and I try to stay away from the soluble and the easily fermentable types. And you do have some fermentation with the indigestible fibers, but you have way more, way more with the, the water-soluble types of um, of fibers, okay? So there we go with the whole food group. Now, 
So food, non-food carbs now. Non-food carbs, we have a whole class of compounds called glycosoaminoglycans. Glycosoaminoglycans or GAGs, G-A-G-S for short, as in like, yeah, GAG. All right, these GAGs, very interesting. They actually are chains of repeating disaccharide units. Okay, so they have these two monosaccharides bonded together and you repeat those units and you get these GAGs that are very large molecules, high molecular weight. Okay, and um, they are actually an extracellular matrix. They're found outside of cells in your body. They're really important. Um, again, sometimes people will say, you know, carbs are really bad for you. And certainly you don't need to eat carbs, but your body does need carbs. There's a whole field of biology called glycobiology. And there are a lot of important structures that are made from carbs in your body, right? But you certainly don't need to eat the carbs because your body will make its own carbs and you'll have plenty that way. But these GAGs are carbohydrate structures. Oftentimes they will form these aggregates uh, with some, you know, proteins. And those are called proteoglycan aggregates. Proteoglycans tend to have way more carbs than proteins, maybe 5% protein and then the rest of it would be carbohydrate structures, right? But they're very important. They are very lubricating and they absorb a lot of water. Some examples would be things like hyaluronic acid and chondroitin sulfate, um, dermatin sulfate, heparin sulfate, that sort of thing. So if you think about hyaluronic acid, for example, that's seen in skin and people may be familiar with that name because you'll see it in a lot of um, skin products as well. So hyaluronic acid, it absorbs a lot of water in your skin, so it gives it that fullness, right? And we have a lot more hyaluronic acid uh, when we're younger, but as we age, people tend to lose hyaluronic acid, and then the effect would be more sagging of the skin because it's not as full, it's not as well hydrated. Uh, you'll often see hyaluronic acid added to skin products to help you moisturize the skin, make it look fuller. I don't know if those work because it's a pretty pretty large molecule. I don't know how it would get absorbed into the skin, high molecular weight stuff. But certainly in the cosmetic industry, they will inject hyaluronic acid, right? Those are known as uh, injectable fillers, and that can help lift the skin up. It absorbs a lot of water, makes the skin look a little fuller. But on in the skincare products, I'm not sure how it breaks, how it absorbs into the skin because it's a pretty big molecule. Right. Uh, you also find other gags like chondroitin sulfate, for example, in cartilage tissue, in joints. Now joints, you have the joint fluid. So these gags are useful because they are lubricating and they have high viscosity and they can help promote the health of joints. And again, as we age, we lose those gags and that can lead eventually to osteoarthritis right? Uh, one form of gag that I want to single out is heparin, H-E-P-A-R-I-N. It may be familiar to some of you. Heparin is actually a carbohydrate. It is a gag carbohydrate 
It is actually the only gag that is found inside cells. I told you gags are outside in the extracellular matrix, very important for structures. But the heparin is inside mast cells, M-A-S-T. These are immune cells that you can find in your skin, in your lungs, right? And it is an anticoagulant. So that means it inhibits the clotting of blood. Very important substance, uh, a gag inside cells. It's different from heparin sulfate, which is also a gag. Heparin sulfate is spelled H-E-P-A-R-A-N sulfate. It's, you know, heparin sulfate is less sulfated than heparin. Uh, again, it's extracellular. It's not as charged as the heparin. So there are differences, though there are many similarities and there's a lot of researchers kind of looking at the link between the two. All right, the gags I told you are extracellular. They are also negatively charged, okay? And this means that they can bind positively charged minerals. So I did a talk once and I talked about uh, sodium in the skin. And I don't know if I can find the link, but if I do, I'll include it below. But with these gags, they're very negatively charged. So they attract positively charged um, minerals like sodium. So when you consume sodium, a lot of people think oh, it just stays in your blood and it can raise your blood pressure. But it turns out that really a lot of this sodium gets pulled into the skin by these gags and then, you know, it it stimulates a certain immune reaction in the skin. So uh, the gags can actually attract these minerals into the skin. So similarly, it can attract potassium as well. All right, very interesting. And um, I think we should remember that they're very int uh, important to cell membrane formation, also very important to the uh, lining of your blood vessels, right? If you don't have these gags, you're not going to have healthy blood vessels. I'll probably do an episode on, you know, uh, blood vessel health at some point, but you should keep in mind that you definitely need the gags for that. So once again, we have the carbohydrates divided into food, non-food. In the food category, you have the digestible stuff like starch, and the glycogen and then you have the dietary fibers which are indigestible and in that category you have soluble and insoluble and we really need to balance the types of fibers we have uh, in our diet and then we have the non-food category of carbohydrates which would be the gags and uh, these are very important for structure in your body, extracellular matrix, they can bind minerals, right? And they promote the health of your joints and your skin because they draw in a lot of water and they are highly viscous. Okay, I think that's it for the general idea of carbohydrates in your body. We can now move on very briefly to digestion and absorption of carbohydrates. Essentially, when we talk about digestion, we just mean breaking the links between the monosaccharide um, chains, 
all right so these lego bricks are linked together and if you break the links between each brick that is digestion digestion of carbohydrates begins in your mouth because you have salivary amylase and amylase would be the enzyme that breaks down those uh, bonds okay between the monosaccharide units another place that you will have amylases would be in the small intestines and there you would find pancreatic amylase because it's secreted by the pancreas so really for carbohydrates nothing much happens in the stomach it's mostly mouth and then in the small intestines okay so the um, amylases will chop up the chains of carbohydrate into these monosaccharide units eventually and now this monosaccharide unit would need to get into your body so let's just start by envisioning your gut very very simplistically as a tube okay it's not like that at all but i said very very simplistically so just think of a tube the middle hollow part where the food and water will pass that is the lumen l-u-m-e-n okay and then the wall of the tube would be your intestinal wall and they are lined by cells that are called epithelial cells okay these epithelial cells are the first lining cells on the walls of the intestines now if you are a cell an epithelial cell then the side of you that faces the lumen okay is called the apical side a-p-i-c-a-l and you have the apical membrane there right cells all have cell membranes so the apical side has the apical membrane right and now the the back side yes we all have back sides so the back side of the epithelial cell is called the basolateral membrane okay b is for back b is for basolateral it's not really the back side and you don't really have a front or back but we consider the side facing the lumen that's the apical side so there you have the apical membrane and then you know behind that right would be the basolateral membrane um, which actually now uh, faces the blood vessel side okay so those are the two sides of the epithelial cell now in the basal uh, lateral membrane you have this enzyme called a sodium potassium atpase and just in brief what it does is it sits on the membrane and it um, takes out sodium from the cell it just kind of extracts sodium and brings in potassium also both are positively charged okay so it dumps sodium out of the cell and brings in potassium into the cell and it uses ATP to do that so it's a sodium potassium ATPase there's this exchange right as a result of that uh, you know you dump out three sodiums you bring in two potassiums as a result you have a relative sodium deficiency if you think of it that way in the cell okay so there's lower now concentration of sodium in the cell well on the apical membrane facing the lumen where the food and water are passing by right there you have a special transporter and this transporter is called the SGLT symporter co-transporter all right different names for it so what it does is because there's less sodium now in the cell 
than outside the cell. This transporter will bring in sodium down a concentration gradient, right? It's easy because you go from a place that has high levels of sodium to the interior of the cell where there's relatively less sodium. So it's just kind of like flowing, water flowing downhill. And that's easy. So you bring in two sodiums down a concentration gradient. And in the cell, you actually have more glucose than outside the cell. So this is an opposite situation to the sodium. You now have actually more glucose in the cell than outside, right? So if you were to try and bring in the glucose from outside, it's actually pretty hard because you already have a lot of glucose in the cell and you would have to do a lot of work to bring that, to, to force that glucose in. Okay, just imagine you were in a packed bus. There's already a lot of people on the bus and now you try to get into the bus and someone may actually have to shove you in and push you in and keep you in because the bus is already packed, right? So the glucose is trying to come in, but what it does is it's going to take advantage of the sodium transport because sodium is slowing from high to low concentration as it comes into the cell. Right, so we can utilize that energy, right, for as it flows down this concentration gradient to also kind of sneak in a glucose molecule. So you bring in two sodiums and you can sneak in one glucose as a result. Okay, so that's why it's called the SGLT transporter or the sodium glucose linked transporter or uh, co transporter. And in the intestines, it's known as the SGLT1. Uh, transporter. It's also the reason when you rehydrate someone, you know those rehydration packages, if you look at the ingredients you'll see both sodium and also glucose. They always add a little bit of glucose there because um, you know that glucose as it's drawn in with the sodium, right, it's going to draw in a lot more water than just the sodium alone, right? The glucose with the sodium will draw in a way more water than the sodium alone and you will help rehydrate that patient a lot quicker. Okay, so it's utilizing this co-transporter principle. In the kidney, we have the SGLT2 co-transporters. And here, uh, we utilize the sodium as it's drawing into the cell uh, to transport glucose from the urine back into the kidney. Normally, you know, you don't actually want to dump glucose in your urine and your body draws it back via this SGLT2 transporter. So the, it draws sodium in, and at the same time, like in the intestines, it's going to draw in the glucose as well. And you keep the glucose in your body. Now, um, you have this class of medications called SGLT2 inhibitors, and a prescriber might give their patients that uh, medication. What it does is it blocks that transporter. So now you can't draw the sodium in, you can't draw the glucose in. And as a result, you're going to dump glucose into the urine and get rid of glucose that way. And this is useful if someone has high levels of blood sugar. And if you give the SGLT2 inhibitors, you dump the sugar into the urine and thereby lower the blood level of sugar. I mean, could also change the diet we don't seem to take that route as often but just saying that there is that class of medications and they have names like canagliflozin and empagliflozin and 
impossible names to pronounce, all right? Those are SGLT2 in the uh, kidney, and then in the intestines, we have SGLT1. All right, now we got the glucose into the epithelial cell, but we have to get it into the bloodstream. So how are we going to do that? So let's go back to the basal lateral membrane, right? And now the glucose that's in the cell has to get out there. There's a family of transporters called glucose transporters. Uh, they're shortened uh, to GLUT and G-L-U-T-S, right? Some people say GLUTs, right? I tend to say GLUTs, all right? And there are a number of them, so there are like 14 of them. And they each have a number, GLUT1, 2, 3, 4, and so on, okay? So in the cells of the small intestine, you have at the basal lateral side these GLUT2 transporters and what they do is they'll take the glucose and then from the inside of the cell and take them into the bloodstream, right? GLUT2 transporters. GLUT2s are also found in the liver, they are found in the pancreas and uh, in the kidneys as well, okay? So you'll find some GLUT2s there. Now, in this family, you also have the GLUT1s, okay? And almost all cells in your, all cells in your body have GLUT1 transporters. So um, this is especially important, this particular transporter, very important for red blood cells. So red blood cells, they don't have a nucleus, they don't have mitochondria, so they really depend on glucose um, and on glycolysis for their fuel source. So they actually will have GLUT1 transporters in there so they can take in that glucose easily. Uh, they don't have the mitochondria so that they really cannot oxidize fats, right? But all cells have GLUT1 transporters. I already told you where the GLUT2s are. GLUT3, GLUT3 you think of in the brain, in, in neuronal tissue, okay? Very important in the brain. And then you have GLUT4 transporters. The GLUT4s are important because they are the only glucose transporters that are dependent on insulin, okay, which is a hormone made by your pancreas. We'll talk about that in a later episode. So these GLUT transporters tend to be on the plasma membrane, except for GLUT4. GLUT4 is actually inside the cell, hanging out in a little vesicle or endosome. So it's like a little bubble compartment and your GLUT4 is hanging out in there, in the cell, right? Uh, and when you have insulin coming and binding to the insulin receptor on the cell membrane, it's kind of like insulin is ringing the doorbell or knocking the door and setting off a series of uh, signaling reactions, right? And the eventual result would be to release this GLUT4 to the cell membrane where it can now bring in glucose, okay? You find GLUT4 in muscle and in fat. Those are the cells where we see the GLUT4 transporter. Muscle, fat, okay? Muscle, fat. Muscle, fat, muscle, fat, GLUT4. Dependent on insulin because you need insulin to bind to the insulin receptor at the surface, at the cell membrane, and that triggers a cascade of signaling reactions. Eventually, 
um, leading to this compartment where the GLUT4 is sitting inside the cell, moving to the cell membrane, and there it can bring in the glucose, okay? So that would be GLUT4. Uh, one other thing I want to say is these different glucose transporters have different affinities for glucose, okay? So, you know, some of them will have higher affinities than others. Really, the glucose transporter that has the highest affinity for glucose would be the GLUT3 transporter, okay? So very low concentrations of glucose in your bloodstream, right? The one that's going to bind and bring in the glucose most is that uh, GLUT3 has the highest affinity, okay, of all the GLUT transporters. And that's no accident because you find GLUT3 where? In the brain, right? It's really important for the brain to have glucose and we can make that glucose in our own bodies. And your brain can also use ketone bodies for metabolism, but it does seem to have a preference for glucose as well. All right. So if you have low blood sugar levels, fasting blood sugar levels, um, generally people worry that, okay, the brain may not get enough glucose, but not to worry because the GLUT3 transporters in the brain, they have the highest affinity and they get first pick. So they're going to grab most of the glucose and prioritize it for the brain cells. Okay. All right. So I think we've covered what I wanted to go over today. Um, let's do our wrap up now. So we talked about carbohydrates and all their various manifestations in the body. And the simplest ones are monosaccharides. If you join them together, you have disaccharides. And when you have many of these uh, uh, monosaccharides joined together, you have eventually the complex carbs or polysaccharides. Structurally, they can be homoglycans or heteroglycans. Don't worry about that. But functionally, best to think of them as food, non-food. Within the food category, you have digestible, non-digestible, right? Digestible would be starch and also glycogen. And then in the non-digestibles, we're going to have uh, essentially the dietary fibers. And there you can further divide them into soluble and insoluble, right? And we really need a balance of those fibers, not too much because although we tend to think of fibers as being good for health, they can also have deleterious effects uh, if we're not careful. Then we have the non-food uh, carbohydrates. These are primarily the glycosaminoglycans or GAGs, very important structurally, and they form the extracellular matrix, and they're very important for the health of your blood vessels. They can bind minerals. A uh, very important one would be heparin, which is an anticoagulant in specific immune cells in your body, but other GAGs promote um, hydration of tissue, they bring in a lot of water and lubricate the tissue and uh, keep the tissue healthy. All right, those are the gags. Now we also have the digestion and absorption of carbohydrates. They are digested in the mouth and in the small intestine by amylases. And then once they're broken down into their monosaccharide units, they are absorbed into the intestinal cells via this SGLT1 transporter on the apical side and via the basolateral membrane, we have the GLUT2 transporter that now brings it into the bloodstream. We have various 
uh, glucose transporters. GLUT1 is in all cells. GLUT2, generally uh, pancreas, liver, kidney, and small intestines. GLUT3 in the brain. GLUT4, muscle and fat. GLUT4 transporters are dependent on insulin, which signals the cell to bring the GLUT4 receptor from within the cell to the plasma membrane to bring glucose in. Yeah, we got through all of that. All right, so that's the end of this episode. In the next one, we will start talking about the regulation of glucose levels in your body. Until then, this is Dr. Vivian Lowe signing out from VLMD Rounds, and I sing the body electric. Goodbye.